let's give it a moment here. So who's doing the notes? I got it, Dad. I'm just waiting until we know it's broadcasting properly. I think it's fine. There it goes. Yeah, okay, it's on. Okay, good morning everybody. We're coming to you live from Pastor's Home. Uh, we're just following the recommendations to, uh, to not or keep our social distance and we thought with the people being sick and such within the constituency of our church this might be the best thing. So we hope that you're able to hear us and we're going to follow a service as best we can. Uh, first some announcements. Uh, the verse of the week is Matthew 25 verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, no services tonight. And our prayer meeting will be announced. We'll take the week as it comes. Uh, remember that Andrea is the contact for the prayer chain. We're not going to give out the number over the, uh, the internet here. But uh, if you need that number, talk to other people, I guess. And we'll see if we can get that number to you. Uh, thank you for being giving, uh, for, thank you for, for your being faithful in your giving. For this week, tithes and offerings can be delivered to our house, and we'll take them over to Starla. And if this uh, continues and progresses, we have some other plans in the making to make that easier for us to take care of that. A memorial service is currently planned for Jack Griffin on Friday, April 24th at our church. A luncheon may follow. Uh, we'll have more information on that as, as time goes on. Thanks to our social committee and the Armstrong family for the fellowship at their house last Friday. Uh, I wasn't there, but I heard things were fun and, and people had a great time. Uh, special prayer request today, and help me if I've missed anything. Uh, Sheila has a kidney infection, and of course, Laura, on a related note, has a rather large kidney stone. Um, we pray that she passes that or they take care of that. I kind of wish they would break that up. And that they would, if they're in the hospital, and that is Laura currently, no, oh, no, sorry, she's at home. Okay. Protected from the virus, of course. Okay, did I miss anything? The women's conference. Oh, yes. Uh, the SGBA Women's Conference has been officially canceled. Okay, our scripture for meditation this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We'll take a few minutes for that. Again, if you missed that, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Okay, we'll open with a word of prayer. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this day. And it is beautiful outside, Lord, amidst all the chaos in the world currently. We thank you for the calming power of your spirit, the peace that passes all understanding, Lord, knowing that you are fully in control. We ask, Lord, that you bless us today. Uh, we are not collected physically, Lord, but I pray we're collected by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us this morning uh, to put the very the distracting cares of this world behind us so that we may worship you appropriately. Uh, be with those who are sick already, Lord, and we pray that in the midst of judgment that you bring upon us, Lord, that you remember mercy and grace, for you are gracious and merciful. Bless our hour as we, uh, we worship and be with our pastor as he preaches. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First hymn this morning will be Amazing Grace. If you have a Trinity hymnal, a red Trinity hymnal, it's number 460. If you just look up the words on the internet, we'll be singing five verses. Scripture reading this morning is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. 
But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has been given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our next hymn um, is, if you have the Red Trinity, is 691, which is, It is well with my soul. There are also four verses in this one. And if you have a brown hymnal, it's number 493.
Today we begin a new <clears throat> series entitled The Living Bank and Trust and today's message dealing with a living faith. It's the only faith that works. A dead faith is no faith at all. The Bible does speak of a dead faith, however. <clears throat> we do not want that in our lives. We want a living faith. You know, we call ourselves believers, but what does that mean? Are we believers because we have a certain cerebral understanding of the faith? Are we believers because we say, I believe in God? Jesus tells us that the demons have that kind of faith. Reread from the book of James, but someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Well, good. Even the, even the demons believe that and shudder. James 2, verse 18 and 19. John words it a little differently, but the concept is the same. He writes, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4, verse 20. So to say, to say that you love God, but then to have no evidence of a life of love for others, especially for the brethren whom Christ commands us to love, makes you a liar and very self-deceived. So I think James and John are on the same page. They are both advocating that a belief in God or a love for God can only be proven true when there are deeds of fidelity to back up the words. A sub-theme for our study is encapsulated in the confession of Paul, who says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it mean to live one's life by faith in the Son of God? Are we talking about the faith? Faith as a noun, faith as a body of doctrinal truth? Now don't be too quick to answer no. The faith is something that is objectively true. We learn of the faith in the teachings of the Bible, and without such learning, the faith becomes a free-for-all to promote one's own views. This is why there are so many religions in the world. Man has made up his own faith with everything from atheism to Darwinism to the structured religions of the world, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, and yes, Protestantism, and many other isms. Sadly, sadly, even the name Christianity has been so stripped of biblical doctrine that what many call Christian, you and I, would want no part of because the Christ of the Bible is absent as well. Now Jesus predicted these outcomes. At the consummation of the age, many will come in the name of God claiming to be the Christ. So to give credence to their claims, what do you suppose they do? Matthew 24 verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Okay. But if they turn away from the faith, what do they turn to? What do they substitute in its place? Well, the next verse, Matthew 24, verse 24, verse 11. Many false prophets, verse 24 adds false Christ. Many false Christ will appear and deceive 
many people. Well, how would a false prophet or a false Christ deceive people? Well, it would be through his brand of teaching. His doctrine that is opposite of the faith, of which Jude says in scriptures, Dear friends, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jude verse 3. And Paul adds the thought, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Deception comes by teachers of religion who do not know the faith, nor the God of the faith. If you have ever listened to the History Channel or the Discovery Channel do a piece on the Bible, the people they interview and tap for understanding are not evangelical Christians. They are not people who have a knowledge of the Bible and a personal faith in Christ. No, instead, they interview professors from Harvard and Princeton and Oxford, etc., all schools founded by true-born Christians, but which long since have abandoned the faith, once entrusted to the saints. And they have become bankrupt in their stewardship by hiring and promoting an alternative gospel or faith instead. People who do not believe the Bible as the depository of the one faith have no living faith in the God of whom they are trying to teach. But they gain credibility because of their human credentials. I mean, they have the doctorates at the prestigious institutions of so-called higher learning. Now, this is not to knock education and study, but it is to say with Paul, since the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness, as assessed by the world, that is, through the foolishness of what was preached, in other words, Christ crucified. It pleased God to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Who believe? Those who believe. That's a reference to a second usage of the word faith, this time not as a noun, but as a verb. Faith in the sense of trust, which surfaces in actions. It is linked to faith as a noun, the teaching of the gospel, but it is the response to such teaching. And in that sense, a living faith for the believing heart. That is what this new series is all about. Again, in Paul's affirmation, the life I live, he says, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, Galatians 2, verse 20. That's a present, ongoing reality of believing God's instruction as he has spoken in the Bible. Now we read, then, God's deposit of the responsibility. It's in Matthew 25. And I'm going to read verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now, the man going on the journey in this parable is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the king in the Luke 19 text, who is describing the time lapse between his ascension and his return. And in many of the other parables, the point seems to be that while the going away can be calculated, his return cannot. So there is the need to be watchful and ready and diligent and prosperous on his behalf. What does a wealthy man do with his holdings when he is gone? Well, verse 14 says, he called his servants and entrusted his property to them. 
It was his property to them. So the wealth is his, but the management of the wealth is theirs. This is nothing less than a stewardship or a trusteeship. And Paul says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. I mean, if you consider the word faithful in its base meaning, full of faith, that's what the word means, you will readily see that what the master expects from his servants in the exercise of their stewardship is faith in him as they manage his goods. And Paul says the servant who is a trustee of another person's possession must prove faithful. That is, he or she has to have a demonstrable faith. You cannot just say you believe. You must believe. And your actions must show that you believe. Well, what must you believe? Let me suggest four realities. Number one, that your master is worthy of your loyalty. Jesus put it this way, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. In days gone by, this was a given in all employer-employee relationships. I mean, if you hired on at a company... That company expected you to be loyal to them. And they in turn pledged to be loyal to, to, to loyal to you. If they built GM cars, they did not expect you to come to work in a Ford. A few years back, I read in the paper of some vandalism that was occurring at the GM parking lot in Flint, allegedly by disgruntled workers who didn't like the idea that their fellow employees were driving other brands of cars. In hard economic times, they expected GM employees to buy GM vehicles. Every sale counted. Even the dealers would give brand loyalty discounts back then. Today, loyalty is a thing of the past. No one gives an employer a two-week notice if relocating. Time and time again, employees have walked in to work on a Friday afternoon to find a pink slip in their mailbox telling them that they need not report to work on Monday. No time lapse whatsoever. So this has contributed greatly to the hostility we see in our economy. Employees do not trust, that is, they do not have faith in their companies, and the companies have no faith in their employees. Everyone is out for themselves with seemingly no understanding that loyalty breeds security, peace, and stability for all concerned. The master can sleep at night knowing his estate is being well cared for, and the servant sleeps equally well at night knowing that he has stable employment and good income. Each trusts the other and the bond is secure. Secondly, you must believe that the master's interests supersede your own. That is what this whole business of the talents is about. A talent, you see, is a sum of money, as we're talking in biblical terms. While it's true that we manage the master's estate, we manage it, but the money is his, which means what we do with our stewardship, we do with the goal of enhancing and benefiting the interests of the master. We don't steal from him. We don't clock in and then go take a nap somewhere in the back room. We don't abdicate our management to others who are busy managing their own responsibilities. Fickle feelings do not dictate whether we're going to be obedient or not. We don't become lazy. We don't become slipshod in our work. 
We don't compare ourselves with others who are managing more. We just dedicate ourselves to the honor and glory of the one we serve because our faith is in him and we exist because of him. Two of the servants in this story exhibited this faith. The third did not. Verse 18 says, The man who had, deceived, had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So you see, no faith here. Just a despising of his lowly one talent. If you truly believe in Christ, you will live in such a way that believes he will return and longs for his favorable review. Well done, good and faithful servant. A delay in his return does not make you indifferent nor apathetic to your duties. No, you know, even if it is in the midnight hour, verse 6 talks about that, you're ready whenever. Delay is not seen as a time to live for yourself and pander your own comfort zone. Verse 18 says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So faith in Christ does not mean that you see yourself as privileged above others. It doesn't mean that you can ignore your duty while others are working hard and expect Jesus, because of his grace, to overlook your indolence. No, there is a settlement of accounts that is coming. Now, interestingly, everyone anticipates that he or she is going to hear the accolade, verse 21, well done, good and full of faith servant. You have been faithful. We all expect that we're going to hear that. But what if you have not been faithful? What if you have made excuse after excuse for your lack of involvement in putting your talent, the master's interest, to work for him? Being part of the body of Christ, being a member of his estate, his church is serious business because there's a day of accounting that's coming. Anyone who says they believe in God had better have deeds of faith to back that up. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So there's the question. Are you in earnest about your stewardship? Will your so-called Christian life please God? Faith pleases Him. Living your life by your own wits does not please God. Then, fourthly, true faith in Christ will have something to show Him in the day of accountability that proves that you have been distributing and a contributing rather member of his kingdom as jesus reiterates in this account two of the servants did receive the praise of god well done good and faithful servant because it was evident that they took seriously the stewardship entrusted to them there didn't seem to be any jealousy by the man with two thousand dollars towards the man who had five thousand dollars no each did what they could with what they had and in the end they gained more than they had been given which is precisely what God intended this is always the way it is brethren when we are faithful with what God gives us we end up gaining in the end God is glorified by our fidelity to him and we are enriched for having been faithful. I don't think the, par the point of the parable is that they had doubled the master's holdings, but simply that they had put his gifts, his property, to work for him, and it had paid off. They were rewar rewarded with more, and the master invited them to share in his happiness, verse 23. So this was a win-win for everyone, 
Everyone's rejoicing over this. The master, the servants alike. Yet how different is the outcome of the person who has the name of servant and is lodged on the master's estate, who's fed and clothed by him, even blessed with the master's money, yet does nothing but bury the talent in the ground where it does the master no good and serves as an indictment of a wicked unbelief and laziness on the part of that servant. Notice that this servant viewed his master, in this case God, as a hard person, verse 24, self-centered and greedy, harvesting where he had not sown seed. Kind of like the Egyptian taskmasters who compelled the Israelites to make bricks without providing the straw, yet the tally was to be the same. That was this servant's view of Christ while eating at his table and feasting on his goodness. I think it was Judas all over again. And it is the many subsequent Judas types who call Jesus, Oh, Lord, Lord, but they do not do what he says. Luke 6, verse 46. What then was the real problem, the real problem of the wayward servant? To ask it another way, why was the servant with the one talent so remiss in his duties? He tells us, verse 25, I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. I was afraid. There is a holy fear of God which is not only beneficial, but commended by God. Let me read it for you. Psalm 34, verse 9. The psalmist says, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Or to say it again in another psalm, Psalm 40. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see the fear and put man, put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Psalm 40, verse 3 and 4. Notice that this is a fear that trusts in the Lord. It's the fear of faith. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him, Belongs eternal praise. Psalm 111, verse 10. Observe here that fearing the Lord in the sense of holy fear evidences itself by following his precepts. But there's another kind of fear which is sinful and not holy. It is the fear in the sense of dread. This is a slavish fear that makes afraid and makes a person want to distance himself or herself from God, which is generally displayed in wicked behavior. Paul describes men in general saying, All have turned away. They have turned together and become worthless. Same word in our text, in Jesus' use of the text of the lazy servant. King James Version says unprofitable, NIV useless, same word. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. So that is to say, he's saying they carry the kiss of death with them. Their mouths are full of bitter cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Romans 3, verse 12 and following. So what is the underlying base of all of this? What is it that is stoking this putrid, defiling behavior? Verse 18. 
there is no fear of God before their eyes. In their sight, there's no consideration of God whatsoever. Not his power, not his laws, his judgment, their vulnerability to judgment, none of that. No holy fear. But let them catch a glimpse of God as he is, and slavish fear comes to the fore. They're fearful in the sense of being afraid of God. At Jesus' interrogation, before Pilate, the Jews made this accusation. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. John 19, verse 7 and following. You see, it was one thing to condemn a carpenter's son, a storyteller, yeah. But it was quite another thing to condemn to death the Son of God. That made Pilate more afraid. He began to put the puzzle together and see the consequences of his actions. When Paul gave his defense before Felix, the governor, we read as Paul discoursed on righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. And when I find it more convenient, I'll send for you. Acts 24. Verse 25, we have no record that Felix ever sent to have Paul come back and finish his discourse. When Jesus healed the demoniac by casting out his demons, we read, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus, Leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into a boat and left. Luke 8, verse 37. Do you know that the dread of God will characterize the return of Christ? Let me read it for you from Revelation 6, verse 16. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So the problem with this wayward servant who buried his talent in the ground and did nothing to enhance his master's estate. His problem was slavish fear. He says, I was afraid and went out and hid your talent. Verse 25. But we have to ask another question. Why was he afraid with the fear of dread? Why that fear? Had God somehow done him evil while a servant in the estate? Had he been deprived? Had he been beaten? Had he been shunned? Had he been ill-treated in any way? I mean, usually when you think about this, there has to be a complaint or a gripe for someone to be afraid. Well, he did have a perception problem. Let me read it for you. I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Verse 24. We know that this man's perception of God is skewed because Jesus charged his disciples, but love your enemies, do good to them, Lend to them without expecting to get anything back, and then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Luke 6, verse 35. Well, if He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, this servant had no case against God. Again, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
he causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. So even when God issues judgment on sinful behavior, we hear him say, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live, Ezekiel 18, verse 32. So it will never do for us, like this servant in our text, to try to shift the blame for our own failure onto God. People with a slavish fear or dread of God have yet another problem that breeds even more faith. Firstly, they have a skewed perception of God, but now secondly, it is the answer to Pilate's fear that Jesus must be the Son of God, and Felix's fear when he talked of the judgment and why those at Christ's appearing call out for the mountains to fall on them and hide them. How supportive of this fear is a lack of love for God and his Son? Well, the problem is they're God's enemies. He does them good, but they return his kindness with evil, like the servant in our story. In the Luke text of this parable, we read, His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Luke 19, verse 14 and following. Think about the Jews of Jesus' day. The Jews of Jesus' day protested to Pilate, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. John 19, verse 15. An absence of love for God is always the underlying support system of fear. The Bible says perfect love drives out fear. But as it is, Romans 1 verse 30 describes the unbelieving as God-haters, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Jesus told his then-unbelieving brothers the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. John 7, verse 7. Or again, he who hates me hates my father as well. John 15, verse 23. So what then is the connection between love for God and the living faith? Well, I would say it two ways. Firstly, one who believes God loves God. One who believes God loves God. A faith without love for God is not the faith that makes us children of God. Paul puts it this way. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So what's he saying? He's saying faith, but not with love, equals nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. And in verse 13, he says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is always the defining qualifier of our faith. Paul told the Corinthian church, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5 verse 6. In Jesus' tense conversation with the Pharisees, they claimed to believe in God and even claim God as their heavenly Father. But Jesus challenged them, saying, If God were your Father, you would love me. 
For I came from God and now am here. And if I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? No faith, because no love. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. John 8, verse 42 and following. When James observed in the church a preference being given to the wealthy, while the poor were being salted and shoved aside, he wrote, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promise those who love him? James 2 verse 5. So those rich in faith are the ones who love God. You can use this as a spiritual thermometer to kind of take your spiritual temperature if you're willing. If your love for God is shaky, the problem is weak faith. And that leads to fear, slavish fear. That was the issue with this one servant in our story. The other two servants had no guarantee that their efforts would enable them to double their money for the master, but they had faith that if they applied themselves, God would give them the increase. They believed in God. They worked for God's glory. And their service was the measure of their faith. Yes, but also of their love. Because Jesus put it this way, If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, verse 15. Unlike the one servant, these two put their heads together and they put their hands to the plow so to speak but they invested their master's holdings in no way that would gain interest and increase their holdings with him secondly one who loves God believes God Paul commended the brethren at Thessalonica, saying, We ought to always thank God for you, brothers. Rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. The Bible everywhere teaches people that to love God will result in loving one another. So here, the brethren's love for each other proved their love in God. Excuse me, their faith in God. The one flowing from the other. They're connected. The love for God, faith in God. Christ himself said to the church at Thyatira in the book of Revelation, I know your deeds, your love and faith. They go together. Your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Revelation 2, verse 19. So love feeding their faith, their faith was being expressed in service to God and in perseverance. So I ask you Christians today, you say you love God. Then do you believe him when he speaks and in all that he speaks? Do you believe him when he gives instructions on child-rearing that goes against the culture? Do you believe him when his instruction on marital harmony is the opposite of the divorce-happy advocates that we find in our society? Do you believe him about a Christian work ethic, a responsible restraint on borrowing and in debt on amassing material goods? Do you believe him when the politicians say one thing concerning social justice and he says the direct opposite? Do you believe him when he tells us to assemble with God's people as often as we can to hear and learn God's word when it is convenient and when it's not convenient? Do you respect the benefit of corporate as well as private prayer 
Do you believe in mission outreach to the lost? Do you play a part in that outreach? Well, in the weeks to come, we are going to look at all of these things as part of what I'm calling a living trust that God gives to his people. To the many non-Christians listening today, you say you believe in God, but is there any love in your heart for God? Do you love to learn of him, to pray to him? Do you love his character, his power, his authority? Do you desire him above all others in your life? Do you love the things that God stands for? What's that? Holiness, righteousness, truth, justice, mercy, grace in your dealings with one another. Is his commands a delight to you or a burden to you? Is there joy in your heart when you contemplate being with God's people to worship God on the Lord's day? Why then have you not repented of your sin? Why have you not come to Christ seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with God? Why have you not believed his promise? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 37. You know, God moved heaven and earth to send his Son as Savior. So to the unbelieving I say today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but come, come as you are, and God will, he will receive you. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the outpouring of your great love and compassion. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to see the truth of the gospel that you sent a Savior to die for sinners and your invitation is free and gracious to everyone. Come, come as you are. Come. Come to Christ. Believe in him and he will forgive your sins. He will make you part of his kingdom and part of his family. May we believe that today, Lord. And where there is hesitation on people's parts where they're not quite sure if they want to trust you like that. I pray that you will grant them that faith that they don't have, that repentance which they don't have, and draw them effectually by your Holy Spirit into your kingdom, into your church, we pray. For your glory and their good. Amen. closing hymn is great, <coughs> great is my faithfulness again if you have the red hymnal at home it's number 32 it's number 43 in the brown hymnal, brown hymnal. and we have three verses
Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your faithfulness. We're not faithful, but you are faithful. And if we have any faith at all or repentance with regard to our sin, these are your gifts given to your people that we might turn away from our sin and might believe the truth of the gospel. And we thank you. Thank you for those things. Bless us now in the week to come. Help us to live our life for you and to live out our faith for you. Bless our country and help us with this terrible coronavirus that is sweeping across our nation and actually throughout the world. I believe, O oh Lord, that you're calling the countries back to you, helping us to think of where we are spiritually, pleading with us through these trials to repent of our sin and to come to saving faith in Christ. We thank you that we are called to come to faith in you. And we ask, Lord, your blessing upon your church. Save whom you will, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.